0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, Dr. Marcus R. Ross. He's a paleontologist and the CEO of Cornerstone, educational supply. He's a longtime science educator. He's taught for 16 years as a professor of geology and uh, was director of the Center of Creation Studies at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, we started a conversation last time about dinosaurs, uh, but I wanted to ask about uh, other subjects about his uh, company and other paleontological questions. So welcome back, Marcus. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much for having me back. It's a delight. Okay, maybe we could spend a few minutes on the Cornerstone Company and tell me about that.
2: That's awful kind of you to ask. So Cornerstone is a company my wife and I started while I was still uh, an educator, while I was still teaching at Liberty University. And uh, I got the idea that uh, you know maybe there would be some kids out there, especially in the homeschool and uh, private Christian school environment, who would be interested in rock, mineral, and fossil kits, the sorts of things that I taught out of my lectures and my laboratories at school. And I I looked at them and thought, well, you know... are kind of expensive. They could be done less expensively without any change to the materials, and it would open up a world of geology to a bunch of people who sometimes are a little bit cautious about entering into that area of science because of the occasional conflicts that they find between uh, religious faith, particularly uh, Christian biblical faith, and what many geologists think is the, uh, the history of the earth. And so I wanted to be able to provide some materials that would help to engage people in learning about geology and fossils and minerals, and at the same time, be able to show them that there is a path forward, I think, for those who are devout Christians who think that the Bible is providing us with real information about the history of the world and, and seek to take that seriously. So that's what got us started. You know, it was, it was one of those mom and pop in the basement sort of thing. We, we tore out a whole bunch of stuff, put in shelves and started assembling geology kits. And it wouldn't be too long before we started supplying homeschool co-ops with uh, materials that they needed, expanding way beyond geology. And then we started making biology kit for a uh, online or a video curriculum company and uh, that started us you know just expanding out into other things and now our company uh, specializes in making customized science kits for curricula if you're doing homeschool stuff or if you're doing private christian school or if you're in secular colleges and or private christian colleges we do a wide variety of of different types of things anything from physics kits to geology to biology and engineering so you know whether it's uh, beakers or
1: breakers we're putting it in Okay. Very. Cool. What, what are some of the uh, feedback you've gotten from the homeschool co-ops and the other users of the curriculum? Like, what do they, they like about it? What questions do they have?
2: Well, one of the things that we really like to help out with is, you know, reducing the pain of trying to find, you know, 50 different items from 40 different stores. And so uh, we bundle things together for say classical conversations communities. That's the nation's largest co-op system. And uh, so our company produces kits that uh, follow along with their elementary school science so that the directors can purchase, you know, X amount of material for however many students that they have. And, you know, they get this big box and know that the only thing they have to do is head over to a grocery store for a couple of other household items, and they're pretty much set for the year. So uh, convenience is a huge factor, and uh, we work very hard to keep our our pricing highly competitive. I don't fight against a couple of uh, well known websites and stores. You know, if you can go to your to your local big box store and buy it, chances are it's not going in our kits. So we are going to specialize in the things that are a little bit harder to get. We're going to get you, you know, beakers. We're going to get you chemicals that you need to do activities, dissection supplies and uh, specimens. We're going to get you rocks and minerals that, you know, you just can't get at a local store. So yeah, as, as much as we can, we uh, seek to make things really easy on folks so that they have all the stuff that would be really hard to find in one convenient spot.
1: Yeah, I know. That's really cool. Has this inspired you to do any additional curriculum for uh, homeschoolers or it's plenty with the, you know, the geology, the paralytology, et cetera? You know, we've decided that uh, one thing that we're not going to do too much of is make our own
2: curriculum. It, you get into a curriculum, there are, you know, dozens, hundreds of, of different companies that are making curriculum and they do a very, very good job of it. Uh, so for example, if I go to a Virginia homeschool convention, it's one of the bigger ones in the country. You know, there's there's a couple hundred uh, vendors there and most of them are trying to sell curriculum. There's only one guy there trying to sell you a frog and that's me. So uh, I like those odds a little bit better. And uh, we like to partner with curriculum producers. So, you know, they might have a a high school curriculum for science, and they're looking at it and saying, you know, I think this would be more attractive if we had physical materials. And that's where we can come along and say, hey, we can partner with you to make what you want. And for some of our partners. We actually, you know, they sell it on their website and we are the fulfillment center. For others, we produce it wholesale. Others, it's, you know, kind of a consignment thing. They bump people over to our website to pick up what they need. And uh, in any of those situations, yeah, you know, we just have a really good relationship with those curriculum producers to not compete with what they're doing, but to make what they want out of their curriculum, a fuller experience for students working at home.
1: Okay. Very cool and where can people go to to see what you have what's the website sure they can find us on the web at
2: cornerstone-edsupply.com so cornerstone.edsupply.com is uh, where you can go to find uh, a whole bunch of different stuff and i can tell you especially when it comes to geology it's our particular specialty since i was a geologist and you won't find better kits out there we do a really good job and i've got a great team of folks here who help us produce these and uh, they're just excellent
1: okay well, let's switch over to the uh the geology and the paleontology if you would what are some of the uh I don't know, the questions that you're working on right now? You know, what gaps are you trying to fill in or what are you trying to, to discover like right now if you're still actively considering that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah. Well, a couple of different things. Um as far as, you know, say a lot of people ask, like, hey, do you go out on digs and do stuff like that? I don't go out on many. However, uh before COVID hit, a colleague of mine Dr. Matt McLean at the Masters University in California, he and I went up to Washington State to investigate a report of some dinosaur footprints, which would be the first discovery of dinosaur footprints and only the second discovery of any dinosaur material at all in Washington State. And uh, we did find some out there at the outcrop and we documented that and, and put together an abstract for the Geological Society of America in 2019. Then COVID hit and we haven't gotten back out to the site, but that's definitely on our radar as something to head back to maybe next year because there's a couple of good science Scientific papers to publish on that. I also just got an invite from a friend who teaches at uh, Cedarville University in Ohio, Dr. Don Whitmore, and uh, he just invited me to come out to a really neat geology site, paleontology site in eastern Pennsylvania. It's actually on the property of a small church, and they have these exceptionally preserved invertebrate fossils. Uh, Some researchers have already been there and published some work, but they asked us if we would come in and take a look at uh, what they've got. And so that's coming up uh, just in two weeks or actually no. Yeah, two weeks. Uh, I'll be heading out to uh, Pennsylvania and getting to a site that is already looking like it is uh, just going to be spectacular. So really excited to see what's going to come of that. Uh, Dr. Whitmore is bringing students from his classes. So it's going to be a, a real cool experience for students doing a, a couple day field excursion in the wilds of Eastern Pennsylvania. It's uh, it's actually in town, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So those are a couple of, of activities that are kind of on the standard geology stuff. Then on the areas of kind of science and faith and, and creation issues, uh, we just had the International Conference on Creationism this year, actually held at oh. Cedarville. Uh, and I had the opportunity to present one research paper there with two other co-authors and also to be involved in two roundtable workshop kind of discussions, one on do dinosaurs indeed have feathers? And if they do or don't, what does that mean for Christians as they think about science and faith? And uh, the second one was a, a more technical issue about how do we understand where the flood rocks are versus rocks that were formed either before or after the flood? And we
1: talked a little bit about that last time on the show. Yeah, we'll get into all that in a minute. On the digs, since you've been on a few, I don't know, what percentage of archaeologists or paleontologists or geologists actually go out in the which one, you know, how many are stuck in the lab and never go out. I was just curious if you, you know, the aggregate numbers.
2: Not off the top of my head. You know, a lot of us in that have been trained in paleontology will teach at colleges and universities or even high schools or might work at local science centers. There's not very many folks who end up being a paleontologist and are, you know, working at a research institution, university, and, you know, getting funding to go out and do stuff that's a much smaller number uh, out there so you know how many of them get out there not as many of us as would like to'll uh,
1: I'll say it that way what did it do to your your thoughts and your observations once you went on a few outdoor excursions you know you you, you can teach about this stuff all day long and read about it but when you're out there in the dirt and the sun and digging and looking and you know how do they change your perspective You know, that's a great question. Thanks, Richard,
2: because it was a field methods class when I was an undergraduate at Penn State that really opened my eyes to how much I did love geology. I tend to be more of a uh, thinker than a doer. You know, if you're going to kind of bin people in something like that. I'm not as much of an outdoorsy guy, but when I finally took my first field methods class in geology, where we went out for four hours twice a week, so eight hours in the field every week, that was just like, wow, scrambling over rocks and, you know, looking at stuff and getting your notebook out and documenting and, you know, watching Amish buggies drive by and 18 wheelers drive by. We're out in Pennsylvania. It was super fun. And then when I was in my master's program, I got my first full taste of, you know, being out for weeks at a time. I was hired to traverse the, Missouri River up in South Dakota and document the geological uh, resources that are owned by the Army Corps of Engineers. They own the land right aside from the the lakes and the river there. So those were some really formative experiences for me. But then later on, as I continued on in my work, a lot more of what I did was uh, database analysis. I would, you know, go to museums and catalog everything I could find about the particular critters that I was interested in. For my PhD, those were mosasaurs, uh, big swimming marine reptiles. And uh, then I'd come back from those trips and I'd try to work out what do these data mean when we start looking at diverse extinction, origination rates, the total amount of Mosasaurs that seem to be in a set of strata at any given time. So those were the types of questions that really interested me. I was, I was really interested in kind of pattern analysis. But every once in a while, it's good for me to, you know, put the hat and the vest on, grab my hammers and go out and hit a rock and uh, enjoy God's creation and what he's hidden inside.
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Any strategies that you use to, to – like, like what I imagine is, you know, if you go out on a dig, what if you uh, had someone that literally filmed everything you saw, and then later you can go through the footage or they can – And potentially spot things that you didn't see the first time because you're busy looking at rock a and you missed on you missed cropping b you know uh any strategies or thoughts you had to um, not even make it a one-time experience but to take it back with you and keep finding more and more uh, from the same experience knowing that it's precious to Spend your time to physically be somewhere. That's a very interesting
2: concept, and something that uh, in paleontology we don't usually think about. You know, bringing along cameras to video document. We, uh, certainly, we bring along cameras, and you know, take lots of photographs. That was one thing that my undergraduate advisor told me. He said, "For your art class, take either drawing or photography, so that you're going to be able to illustrate things well and and represent them well." And I should have taken photography. I did the illustration class. But here's a fun little secret. Actually, the vast majority of of cool stuff that is found by paleontologists is first discovered by amateurs. You know, the vast numbers of people that are out there that enjoy rocks and fossils and like going out on the weekend uh, versus the professors and the museum workers that are, you know, in their lab or in their class all day and then they hit the weekend they want to do something else. And so really a lot of paleontology is discovered because of uh, lay folks that find interesting things and then call up, you know, their local college or museum and say, hey, we got this neat stuff out on our property. Uh, Can you send somebody to take a look? Or, you know, can I bring some stuff in and let you see it? And the dinosaur footprints that are out in Washington state, those were discovered not because I was wandering around there, but because somebody locally was. And uh, he just, he's a rockhound and he found some stuff and he contacted some friends who got in touch with me. And uh, likewise, the, the church property that I'll be going to in two weeks, other people, no doubt, had found something there and contacted a you know, local university like uh, University of Pennsylvania, and said, "Hey, we got some really cool-looking stuff here." And you know, that's really great for any of the folks that are out there listening. Then the norm, and uh, if if you can start working on that, then you know, there's all kinds of opportunities. You can search for the web for local organizations or things like that. Uh, you know, a, a local paleontology club. There's lots of them out there. But the great thing is that you don't have to have a college degree or be trained in paleontology to do this stuff. You just need good eyes and a chance to go out and take a look at some rocks and discover stuff. And, you know, it really is that simple that, you know, once you start training yourself to see things that are different from the rest of the rock, uh, then all of a sudden things start popping up at you.
1: I know it sounds maybe funny or silly, but uh, if I wanted to go somewhere and I wanted a geologist to come with me to show me things that I wouldn't otherwise see, I hire them? Do they ever do that? That's a really neat question. Yeah. Like what if I was going to go to the Grand Canyon? I called you and I said, Hey, do you know someone that is in geology that would be, I could pay them to come with me and they could help show me things I wouldn't normally see?
2: Well, uh, you know, for something like the Grand Canyon, I would point you to an organization called Canyon Ministries, for example. And uh, they run ri- river raft tours as well as bus tours up to the rim. And uh, they know that stuff like the back of their hand and they can show you all kinds of things. Uh, I was privileged to go down the Grand Canyon on a river uh, raft on two occasions. And they're just a wealth of knowledge down there. And they're going to be able to show you where the fossils are. They're going to be able to show you interesting features, caves. They're going to take you on hikes to waterfalls and things like that. Uh, All sorts of really neat stuff. Now, if you go to the Grand Canyon, because it's a national park, you can't take anything out of there. Everything stays in there. You can't take a blade of grass. Well... (laughs) Not much there in the canyon. And same thing goes with any of the other national parks or some of the other things. Vertebrate fossils, in particular, things like dinosaurs or uh, mammoth and, you know, mammal sorts of material on federal land are protected. So you're not able to take that stuff out. Some federal lands will allow you to collect invertebrate fossils, uh, shells, trilobites, ammonites, things like that. And a lot of state land will allow you to collect that within reason. You can't go out there with a jackhammer and start a split in shale like it's a business. But there are also businesses that have private land. I can think up, especially in places like Wyoming, uh, there's a whole bunch of different places on the Green River Formation that will allow you to come up, pay a fee and split shale and you will come back with you know bucket loads of fish fossils, for example, or if you want trilobites, there's a couple of great places out in Utah that uh, have really abundant fossils. And you go out there and you split shale, and uh, you get to keep whatever you find. And uh, you know if you're doing a, a tour of the West, these are some really really cool opportunities to take you know a half a day and uh, walk away with probably you know 30, 40, 50 fossils out of it.
1: You know, I was wondering, like, do you ever um, offer people to come with you? You know, if they pay a certain amount. You know, for like half a day or something and you, you're working at a site anyway, but you know, people want to see what you're doing and learn from you directly. I don't know if you or other paleontologists geologists ever do that kind of thing, I get organizations do.
2: Some places do. Uh, when I was a grad student at the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, for the paleontology field course that I was on, it was a two-week course, that was open to the public. Other people could register to come for, you know, three days or a week or something like that and uh, excavate fossils out with the paleontologist and geologists out in the real world, you know, out in the badland uh, areas could work with the national parks folks there. We had some other government land that we worked on for mine, uh, where we were excavating those mosasaurs, those big marine reptiles. And uh, so there are some universities and some museums, especially that do that. Uh, the museum, see the Denver Museum of Science, for example, does a program similar. I think they still do it. So yeah, you, know, you might look for those kinds of opportunities. You might, you know, check out, you're in uh, Texas, might check out the university. Of Texas system and see if uh, if their geology program, especially UT Austin, which is a huge program, really influential and important group in geology, you know, they might have something similar.
1: Oh, that's really cool. Okay, uh, that's great. You know, like I could see for a homeschool curriculum, if they were able to arrange a field trip for the kids, it would be amazing. But yeah, if you just want this experience for your children, or if you want it as just a you know an interested amateur as an adult. So that's why I was asking. I guess these things popped into my head. Yeah, you know something that I tell homeschool associations when they ask our
2: local homeschool groups, I tell them to get in touch with a local rock quarry. So, uh, you know where where you're at out in Texas, there's a whole bunch of limestone quarries. Everything's made out of concrete down that way, especially around the Dallas area. And quarries are great. Great companies most of the time, and they often will have an educational component. Where if you say, "Hey, could we get a tour of the quarry?" They'll bring in their geologist, you know, who works for their whole company, and uh, and might just do a tour for them. And some of the stuff, especially the limestones in Texas that are you know quarried all up and down the area, a lot of those have fossils, and your kids might be able to go over to one of the rock piles and hunt their way through and come out with fossils and learn all about mining. And uh, that's something that, at least here in Lynchburg, we don't have fossils in our rocks, but the the local company does do stuff for homeschools and for public schools, too. They're great partners. I really love uh, pointing people to them.
1: All right. Very cool. Well, I guess going back to the uh, two questions you brought up, one, differentiating flood rocks versus uh, pre-flood rocks, I believe that's what you were saying. And post-flood rocks. Oh, and post. Yes. What are some of the characteristics of, of the three, if any, of have, have been found? Sure. So
2: within young earth creationism, uh, as we're interested in thinking about when God first created the world and then later destroyed it with the flood, we might think, okay, are all the rocks made from the flood, especially everything that's got fossils in it? We would think that for creation week rocks, uh, if we go through those six days of creation, it isn't until days five and six when God creates large organisms. Things that live in the ocean or the air or live on land. So, I would expect that Creation Week rocks would generally speaking be barren of anything like, you know, large, complicated life forms. It's quite possible that maybe there was some fossilization between the the Creation Week and the flood, but most of us believe that probably the most significant beginning of major fossil. Forms in the rock record are going to be in place during the flood. And there are a couple of different places in the geological record where we have this major scour mark that pretty much covers one end of North America to the other. Uh, we call it the Great Unconformity. And unconformity, in this case, is kind of like an erosion line. And above the Great Unconformity, generally speaking, you start finding sedimentary rocks with lots and lots of fossils. And so a lot of us in creationism think that that is probably a good proxy for the beginning of the flood. But then we have the question of where. Does the flood end in all of this? And for that, one of the areas of research that I've looked at and kind of a a method that I've proposed for looking at what's flood versus not flood is to think about the difference between animals that are deposited during the flood versus the animals that eventually come back and live on top of those rocks and sediments. And I would expect that there would be a pretty substantial break that whatever happened to be buried, say, where i live in Virginia at the time of Noah's flood is probably disconnected with whatever ended up coming back to this place. Because we also tend to think that the continents had moved substantially, climate and the ecologies are different between the pre-flood and the post-flood world that we now live in. So I would expect that there wouldn't be much connection between the fossils of animals buried in the flood somewhere in my feet. And any additional fossils that
1: might be found in sediments above that? The question yeah. here: What? I mean, from it seems like about a thousand years passed from creation to the flood. So why wouldn't there be pre-flood fossils? What would there? What would you expect? There
2: could be pre-flood fossils, uh, but we tend to think that the the violence of the beginning and the initiation of the flood was probably substantial enough to scour most of those sediments and any. You know, dead organisms that happen to be in them and
1: remobilize them into sediments that were formed during the flood itself. Are there parts where the rock is so thick where you could dig down, where it's very unlikely that it would have been affected by the tectonics of the flood and, and therefore you could get a peek into what it looked like before?
2: There are some places where the rock cover has been scoured away and um, So, for example, where I live in Virginia, in Lynchburg, I don't think that we've got any flood rocks on top of us. They've all been eroded away. For much of the area's existence, it was actually kind of high and dry and being eroded. This is where the Appalachians were being lifted up, I think, fairly early on during the flood. So if I want to find rocks that have flood fossils, I've got to drive at least an hour away to find some. My area, on the other hand, has pretty much been wiped clean down to the, I think, probably creation week or possibly post-creation rocks. But there's no, there's no major fossils of any
1: kind in them. You know, maybe some algae and some bacteria, but that's pretty much it. I mean, I know that dating methods are not super exact, sometimes maybe wildly inexact, but of the places, let's say like Australia, kind of in the interior, supposedly that's, you know, been undisturbed for the longest possible... Has anyone looked in areas where even traditional science says like, hey, this has been around, it's been unchanged for like 3 billion years? Not that it's been that long, but maybe that's a proxy for areas that are the least disturbed or least affected by flood. Maybe not. I don't know. Right. So
2: uh, right here in the North American continent, the place that you could go to see you know, what are at least dated to be exceptionally old, those kind of 3 billion year old stuff would be up in uh, Canada. But one of the reasons why you can get to those rocks is because that was where the glaciers were building and grinding off all of the other sediments. So as they built, probably after the flood, there was an ice age. And so uh, young earth creationists do think that there was an ice age that happened, but they think that it occurred after Noah's flood was done and uh, the land bridges that it it created helped allow say north uh, people to migrate from the old world to the new world but because the glaciers were over northern canada grinding away all the other sediment now you can see those basement rocks what we call the precambrian rocks and Those ones, again, the only types of fossils that you might find in any of them are chemical residues of microorganisms. So these would be, I think, remnants of the original creation week when God was first creating the world. The world had oceans over them. Those oceans would have been populated with microorganisms that would have been doing photosynthesis. And it's not until day five when God starts saying what fish appear and uh, sea creatures and land
1: animals and things like that. Okay. So, I mean, is it thought that nothing observable on the earth was untouched by the flood? It was so cataclysmic, like everything was just affected. Nothing was was kept hidden.
2: I think that's right. Yeah. I don't think that there's a a single stitch on the earth that that is pristine from creation week to today. It's all been affected in some way, either through erosion or metamorphism, where it's been kind of baked and heated, kind of squashed and squished in various ways. That's what you see in some of these deep old stuff and the things that are around me and Lynchburg. Yeah, absolutely everything was affected because the the purpose of the flood was to wipe the slate entirely clean. And it's just a really neat thing to try is uh, read Genesis chapter one and in parallel we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 8 when the flood waters start to go down. And you're going to end up seeing all kinds of really fascinating parallels in the order of events of things like water followed by mountains or land and division of the sea of birds showing up in the accounts before land animals and people. And the writer of Genesis is putting it this way to help us understand that the flood was such a massive and catastrophic event that it really was the undoing of creation and a, a restart. It was control I'll delete basically, in modern
1: parlance. Yeah, I guess as the waters rose, that would explain the order in which fossils have been laid down down. Is that corroborative uh, when you look at it?
2: Yeah, that's a big component to it. There's probably other things going on and we in young earth creationism are not entirely certain what all the factors are involved in why the fossil record has the particular order that it does. One of the largest overall structures that we see in the order is the appearance of marine organisms before we get to kind of transitional marginal land environments, before we get to much more terrestrial, you know, certainly interior land environments. And I think that probably reflects the rise of the floodwaters and pushing the ocean over onto the continents and the land, eventually catching up to the land animals later on. Well,
1: yeah, I would think that if I was in the ocean, I'd be safe. But I guess if the uh, the volume of water... I don't know. Would it have had to have doubled or tripled or 100x well, to, to reach the top of the mountains? Like, What are the estimates there?
2: That's a great question. And actually, the volume of the ocean water doesn't change. What changes is the position of the water and how deep it is Compared to the land. So, right now, we've got extremely deep ocean areas, and we've got continents that poke up out of that, and they're made out of different geologic materials. The continents are mostly made of granite and another similar rock called diorite, whereas the oceans are, their crust is made up of basalt. For the listeners, think of Hawaiian Islands lava. That is the sort of material, and it's much more dense than granite is. So, the ocean crust is thin and dense, and it sits down low, and the continents are thick, but also buoyant and light. And so they stick up. What happened during the flood is that there was a lot of plate tectonics activity and that activity elevated the bottom of the oceans and pushed them up vertically. And as they did that, it's kind of like raising the bottom of your bathtub. The water's got to go somewhere. It keeps going up and it goes up onto the continents. And we have a couple of different components that we think are happening during what we call catastrophic plate tectonics. But the main thing is that the continents are being eroded fast and the ocean bottom, uh, the ocean basin is being lifted up and that displaces the water to the point where at least at, at one point during the flood, the entire world is entire is completely covered. And it doesn't stay that way for very long. God relents and causes a wind to come over and starts the process of the water going back. But it's a fascinating thing to think that actually all the water that was used to destroy the world is still with us. It started in the oceans. And
1: at the end of the flood, it went back to the oceans. What are the fountains of the deep? I mean, so how would the land be the upthrust? In enough places so as to make the water level rise thousands of feet, like what would be pushing it up and below it? There would be no void space. Would it be magma? Like massive amounts of magma released that pushed up the the outer surface of the earth all over the place?
2: Yeah, it is. So if you drained out all the water in the ocean and looked at the surface of the ocean, you would find that there's kind of this this mountain ridge going down the middle of the Atlantic, and it zippers its way all around the world, kind of like the seam of a baseball. This is called a ocean ridge, and it's an elevated area where there's magma underneath and new lava is oozing its way out in this ridge. So we think of a mountain like this big craggy sort of thing, but rather this is a big, wide, rising mountain that has cracks down the middle of it, and new magma is being emplaced there. And that's kind of place where two conveyor belts are moving in opposite directions. During the flood, this was highly accelerated so that we had very, very fast magma in placement, and that warm, hot ocean crust that's being made from this magma expands, And that's what's raising the bottom of the ocean floor. This stuff is not as cool and dense as the ocean floor that was there. As it's replacing it, it's expanded out. And as it cools down towards the end, of the flood eventually contracts and the water goes back into the oceans. But during the flood, you basically warmed up the bottom of the ocean by resurfacing the ocean crust. And as long as that is going on, you get about 1,000 to 1,500 feet vertical of difference between... The pre-flood ocean crust and the ocean crust that's being made during the flood, that's a lot of water rise, right? 1,500 vertical feet. That's going to go over the continents substantially. And if you're eroding out the mountains at the same time, then you can get to a point where the entire world is covered. It's not like Mount Everest is around. Uh, we tend to look at the mountains in the world today and say, oh, wow, God had to bring the water all the way to the top of Mount Everest. No, Mount Everest is actually a consequence of Noah's flood. It's a result of the plate tectonic movements that crash India into Asia towards the flood's end. And we are looking at a very new and recent mountain chain that actually is still growing at a rate of about one to three inches per year. So has it been
1: calculated that if, uh, you know, a thousand plus feet uh, increase in the, I guess, in the... In the level of you know of the ground of the crust, et cetera, that was enough to, to allow things to flood to the point where they would be higher than any map.
2: Yes, I, I think that's very reasonable. And not only do we have the bottom of the ocean that is being raised up, so we get you know fifteen hundred feet or more. Actually, it might be an entire kilometer. So that's uh, even more. That's a couple thousand feet. But we also have a, a drag down situation that's happening where the ocean crust is meeting the continent crust. The ocean crust goes underneath the continent because it's still more dense, but it does so kind of rough and grabs onto the continent and pulls it down with it. And so the continent is also being kind of dragged downward. Now, it's buoyant enough it's not going to go into the mantle of the earth or anything, so it's going to pop back up. But as that happens, those pop-ups are going to give you tsunamis. You might remember the tsunami that struck Japan uh, 12 years ago in 2011. That happened from a similar type of situation where the crust of the ocean is going down underneath near Japan and the part that was kind of being dragged along with it popped back upward and that happened very close to shore. And so they only had about 20 minutes before the tsunami was on them. It was devastating. 23,000 people uh, died or went missing during that particular tsunami. And this would have been happening every couple of hours probably during the flood these just waves of tsunamis are moving everywhere and that's going to be stirring up the sediment that's going to be killing organisms that's going to be creating huge waves to erode margins of the continents it's it's devastating It's absolutely devastating, and that matches kind of the description that were given briefly in Genesis 7 and 8 of, you know, you get these, it would seem to be sort of repetitive, you know, the waters rose, and all these animals died, and then the waters rose more, and they rose greatly, and all these things died, and then it lists all the things that died. But when you realize that the ancient Hebrews didn't have bold and italics and Praise God, they didn't have emojis when they were writing the Bible. Yeah, the way to build emphasis is through repetition. And so sometimes in the Bible, you run into some things that seem like, man, didn't they already say that? Yeah, they did. But when you're a hearer of the word, as most of the Israelites are, it's kind of like your mother talking, right? It's, you know, how many times do I have to tell you? Well, until you get it. And that's what the Bible is doing with these repetitious clauses, trying to help you understand this was real, this actually happened. It was enormous, and absolutely everything
1: died, and uh, because the whole slate had to be wiped completely clean. What if there was a large lake, and as the flood happened, all of a sudden now salt water, you know, came over the brim and flooded the lake? What would that create geologically? that you could observe, you know, nowadays. Wow, that's a really interesting question, Richard. One
2: of the things that it would do is probably cause a mass debt amongst the fish population if it was a freshwater lake. Because if you have a, a huge incursion of saltwater into that, the animals that are dedicated to living in freshwater can't stand the difference in salinity. And that could produce something like, you know, a mass kill assemblage in the fossil record. We have lots of different examples of these in both the marine and the terrestrial realm, but this would be a neat example of one that might happen in a large lake. That can happen also with uh, perhaps volcanic activity. If you have a whole bunch of uh, poisonous gases that pour over a lake and start to mix with the water you might kill off a whole bunch of animals and they would fall to the bottom of the lake and if you had a lot of sediment that was coming over with this you know say tsunami then they would be buried and you'd have the perfect conditions for fossilization fossilization is not something that happens widely in the present it does happen in some places but it's not very common but the flood provides you with a a mechanism to bury Enormous volumes of organisms and uh, produce exceptional preservation like we see in certain places around the
1: world. Are you able to tell when looking at fossils if they were freshwater or saltwater creatures in the marine fossils?
2: Most of the time, we're looking at marine organisms in the fossil record. And the vast majority of the sedimentary rock record with fossils in it is actually marine, which is really interesting if you think about it like, wow, we're, you know, North America is a continent, it's above land, and by far the dominant fossils are marine animals and limestones and sandstones like beaches and shales that you kind of go, it looks like everything in North America at some point or another was underwater. And I I think, yeah, yes, it was. And I think the flood's the, the main driver for this. Other geologists who hold to an ancient earth, they have different mechanisms to do this as well. So when we're trying to figure out if something is freshwater versus saltwater, most of the time, it's not much of a question. If you've got coral pieces and lots of clams and brachiopods and say, you know, octopi type of animal, squid-like organisms, everything that we know about those organisms as a cluster, as a group, as an ecosystem would just kind of scream out to you, this is marine. There are some types of clams, however, that are freshwater clams and certain types of fish that are definitely freshwater fish. And so you'd be looking to see like, okay, does this deposit that has clams and fish, what are the other fossils associated with it? And if you get a lot of land plants and some mammal teeth, then you're going to say, okay, this is probably like a river or a lake system. But if the other fossils with those clams uh, happen to be things like corals, well, corals don't live in fresh water; They only live in marine sediments with salt water or marine <laughs> waters. So yeah, we, we're going to use the modern world to help us adjudicate when we have questions. But every once in a while, we we might get surprised. There's going to be these marginal situations where we're not really sure. But for the most part, we got a good handle on whether or not an
1: organism is marine or freshwater. Ew. What about when seawater came into a land feature, like maybe a gigantic valley, and when the water has receded, it did not recede, so now you have saltwater that's trapped essentially on land, like a saltwater lake It happened to it over time. Well, over time, lakes geologically are considered
2: really, we'd use the term ephemeral. They don't stick around for very long because as a low spot, not only does the water flow in there, but so do sediments, you know, mud and sand and clay and silt and stuff like that. And so lakes over time fill up living here in Virginia in the south, there are no natural lakes. All the lakes that we have are man-made. So river systems are far more likely to be found than lake systems. You go up further to the north and you get into all like the Great Lakes and the Finger Lakes region of New York or stuff like that. Minnesota, the land of a thousand lakes. But all of those lakes are formed by the retreat of glaciers. And they've happened geologically very, very recently. So during the flood, I'm expecting a lot of erosion and probably not a whole lot of lakes besides a few standing lakes towards the end but i expect that a lot of the geological activity after the flood is going to change that dynamic around and we're going to end up seeing different things
1: okay why is there fresh water and salt water why is fresh water over land masses and in between land masses and salt waters and the
0: oceans?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. It does have an answer. So it's not unanswerable. It has to go with, uh, you know, think back to like fourth grade when we learned about the water cycle. So we get evaporation of water out of the ocean for the most part. That's the main area where evaporation happens. And when evaporation happens, the salt doesn't come with the water very much. It tends to stay inside the ocean itself. So we evaporate all of this basically fresh water out of the oceans. And And then that will rain either back on the ocean and just mix in with the salt again, or it will rain on land. And land doesn't have anywhere near as much salt in its soils and rock formations. And so we end up with freshwater rivers and freshwater lakes and things like that on the terrestrial side of things. And it's only going to be in weird environments like uh, Death Valley or uh, Great Salt Lake or the Dead Sea where you find saltwater lakes on land. And the situation with those is that those are areas that have no outlet to the ocean. So the water comes in and it's stuck there in some sort of very warm, very dry evaporating place. And so the fresh water once again, it evaporates out of the Great Salt Lake, for example, but it leaves its salt behind. And as a result, the Great Salt Lake just becomes saltier and saltier over time. And it's gotten smaller over time. It used to be much, much larger, and it's a, a small area. So if you ever see anybody you know doing races and they're trying to break a land speed record, they're out there on the salt flats of, of Utah... That salt flat used to be part of the Great Salt Lake, but it is all evaporated away, leaving just the salty crust behind. So that's why we have salt water in the oceans and fresh water on land. Land doesn't have the salt content that the ocean does. So when the water comes down and flows, it makes fresh water, you know, streams and rivers and such. There would
1: have to be an initial great reservoir of salt in the ocean areas. Does that come from the basalt? Or like, where, where would this come from originally? Well, it could have been created salty to begin with. Salt water
2: is obviously something that helps to support vast numbers of living organisms around the world. There's more there's more biomass in the oceans than there is on land. And so a salty ocean of some kind, I think, would probably be part of the initial creation. Secular approaches to understanding Earth history would have the, the water of the Earth's oceans Getting saltier early on in Earth's history. So, in their view, say the first, you know, four billion years ago, three billion years ago, to two billion years ago is when the water is actually becoming salty. And you know, by the time we get to today, it's plenty salty, and you
1: know, maybe getting a little saltier, but not too much. Well, I guess you'd expect. I mean, even though they're enormous, are the oceans evaporating and causing more fresh water on land in the aggregate over time? worm. They're so big, they're so pervasive that it's really not changing at all, the levels of the ocean and uh, you know, no concentration of salt.
2: It's not changing much at all there, yeah, the oceans are so vast, uh, you know, and on average, they're, you know, two miles deep or so. Actually, probably the average is about three miles deep. And in some places, very, very deep. Other places, much more shallow. But it's hard to envision just how much water is in the ocean and how that stabilizes the whole system. So when I would taught an earth science class and a geology class at Liberty University, I would show my students a a series of charts to help them visualize this. So if we take all of the ocean water and turn it in, or all the, the world's water And turn it into just a a bar, you know, just kind of a a vertical set of lines. 97.5% of all the water on Earth is in the oceans. And so that's a lot 97.5%, 2%, a little bit more than 2%, is in the glaciers. And that represents 80% of, say, all the fresh water on Earth. So 80% of the fresh water on Earth is represented by ice cubes in the North and South Pole. Wow. And then when you break that down and you're looking at all the fresh water, so you got, well, actually it's about, I think, 60 some odd percent in the glaciers. And then you've got, you know, where's the remainder? Well, 30% of it is in the ground, groundwater that we tap that we don't see. That's actually the world's most important water resource is wow. is groundwater. It, it's why you can have an arable plot of land in West Kansas. You know, It's only because of groundwater. So, yeah. Ice cubes that we don't have access to and groundwater that we have to dig sometimes miles down in order to access represents the vast majority of all the fresh water. The all the lakes so, and the streams, they make up a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of one percent to get us back to that original bar of of all
1: the water on Earth. So all the fresh surface water in the world represents less than one percent of all available water. Oh, it's less than one hundredth of one percent. Wow.
2: Yeah. That's crazy. And yet this has been the you know the most important components of human civilization since the very beginning. Right. Every major civilization was built right along a river, for example, or at places where water was accessible around lakes and, and things like that. So tremendously important, but makes up just a fleetingly small amount of the water out there. And it, it's really the ability for us to tap things like groundwater and then to tap our energy resources like coal, oil, and natural gas that have allowed a people to become into the billions of numbers. If it weren't for these resources, there's no way we could support that number of people on the planet. We couldn't all live during the Mississippi River or the Nile and whatnot. There's just not
1: enough land. It's amazing. Well, very good. Marcus, I mean, I could talk to you for a lot longer, but we're (laughs) out of time. This has been a great call. Let's recap. Where can people find out more about your work and your company and you et cetera?
2: Well, thank you. They can find out about our company at cornerstone-edsupply.com for Cornerstone Educational Supply. And you can catch up with me and and my antics and what I'm up to through our company's Facebook page. Um, And I've got a Facebook page too for Marcus Ross. And uh, yeah, if you Google Dr. Marcus Ross, paleontologist, you'll find a lot of things that I'd probably rather you not see. People who don't like me very much that that write about me and whatnot. But nonetheless, that'll be a great place for take a look and find out a little bit more about what's going on. And within creationism, I think we're in a really fascinating time. There's a lot of great work going on. And, you know, we'll we'll get a chance maybe in the future to talk about some of the,
1: the cool research that's being done out there. Excellent. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again.
0: I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.